is this thing called? I don't know what it's called. Lapel. If the red light's on, push it so it's off. Boop, boop, boop. Eh, don't matter. Okay. Second Samuel chapter 11. As we uh, continue the study in a man after God's own heart. And kind of the neat thing as we, as we take a look at what we have here. Understanding going in that when we look at the life of David, we see a normal person. Hopefully, if you don't gain anything else from the study, understand that he's normal. He's not some, sometimes we think of Moses and Abraham and David and these characters in the Bible, and we somehow think that they were somehow cut out a different cloth than everybody else. And so they were able to do incredible things. But the reality is, every single one of those guys, Abraham, Moses, David, we can go to Hebrews chapter 11, and we can read the Hall of Faith, which talks about the incredible faith that they had, and the things that they did for the Lord. And every single one of them has a chapter like 2 Samuel 11. Every one of them. Every one of them has a chapter or a story that talks about the frailty of humanity and the opportunities that we have to do wrong. Because it comes natural to us to do the wrong thing. It's unnatural for us to do the right thing. But left to our own, and if we don't have our guard, and the reason God includes for us these stories of our heroes in the Bible, one, so that we'll recognize they're just like me, so I am capable of the heights just as I am capable of the depths. The heights of their faith, the things that they did, being a man after God's own heart, you're capable of being that person. I'm capable of being that person. Just as I'm capable of doing all the dirty, rotten things that they did. And that's one point that we want to understand. The second thing is he gives us these stories to lay out for us the groundwork of how to protect ourselves. The beauty of of being older and wiser is having the stories to tell the young to help keep them out of the same pitfalls we fell in. Now maybe they're going to go anyway. My job's not to stop them from going. My job's to tell them. If I don't tell you the bridge is out, your blood's on my hands. If I tell you, your blood's on yours. And it's important that we understand that distinction. Now, God holds us accountable, listen, to know His Word. And in knowing His Word, to understand these stories and understand what happened. Why does David fall? Why does David stumble? And if I understand the why does David stumble, why does David fall, then I can choose not to make those same decisions. Listen, just so you know, it's too late when you see Bathsheba bathing on the roof. David made before that is what brought him to that place. And I think we have to understand that as we look and as we see what the Lord has for us tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 11 says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all of Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You ever get tired of the fight? You ever get tired of the, the battle, the everyday constant battle that, that we go through? Because that's exactly the first step to David's fall. 
I'm tired of being in the battle. I'm tired of being in the fight. I'm tired of, of the hassle. I'm tired of the, of the war. I'm tired of going out and expanding the borders. So he sent everyone else out. He sent Joab, and he sent his men, and he sent his servants. He sent all of Israel. Just a chapter before, just a chapter before, you'll remember that there was a battle. And David sent Joab and Abishai. He didn't go. And you remember when they went to that battle, how as they attacked the enemy, the enemy just turned around and ran. There was no fight. And then the enemy regathered himself, and David went. And when David went, there was the battle. And I think that God was giving David a little, a little clue that, David, you're supposed to be in a fight. There is no day off from your faith. There's no vacation from your faith. There's no vacation or day off from the struggle with your flesh until we see Jesus face to face. And when we start to long for that, we're going to find ourselves someplace we should not ought to be. In the time when the kings went to war, David stayed home. When David is a, the chief warrior of the nation. He's the one all those guys want to bleed for. And all those guys are willing to do whatever for. But David stays home. Ah, it's time for other guys. There's no time for somebody else. Until the Lord calls me home, it's my time. Every day is my time today. Took me a long time in ministry. Because in ministry sometimes you think, well, you know, this is my day off. From what? In ministry, we, what are you really taking a day off from? Oh, I'm not going to pray today. I'm not going to read my Bible today. I'm not going to seek the Lord today. If God puts someone in my path, and, and it's an opportunity for me to share my faith, I'm not going to share because I'm off today. There's no day off. There is just our faith, and the practical outpouring of our faith, and living our faith, day in, day out. And it, yes, it costs something. It's supposed to. It's supposed to. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There's a price. Take up our cross. David was supposed to be at the battle. But he's not. He's hanging out at, the, at home. All the other guys are gone. And it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. Second problem for David is in verse 2. David goes out, it's hot, it's a hot spring night in Israel. There, back in those days there was no air conditioning. So if you wanted to cool off, get up and your patio was your roof. There's no, you don't have no property around you, so you go up and everybody did it. On his roof, unfortunately for David, his is the tallest house in the whole city. And if you know anything about the city of David, the city of David is built on a hill. And David's house is on the top of the hill. So he can see everybody's rooftop from his rooftop. Now, he's just going out to cool off. But it says, it just so happens, as he goes out to cool off, he sees a woman bathing. If you like to write in your Bible, circle that word. That word just simply means that he sees something. So as he's looking around, he's not looking for anything in particular. 
All of a sudden, his eyes come upon a woman bathing. But then you have the second phrase. You see the second phrase? And the woman was very beautiful to that word, behold. See, David didn't just see someone on the roof. He dwelt upon her. He saw her on the roof, and he could have liked Joseph. Remember when Joseph, when, when Potiphar's wife came to Joseph and wanted Joseph to sleep with him, with her? And she came to him, remember what Joseph did? He turned around and ran. Why? He understood, if I stay here, in this place, with what's going on, I will fall. So I'm out of here. But David, when he saw her, he stopped. Oh, it happens, it, it can happen to all of us. Maybe you're channel surfing at night. Everybody's in bed already. You're channel surfing at night. And all of a sudden you pop on a channel and, and, and there's this woman on the screen. It's not a problem that you saw her on the screen. The problem is if you don't continue to change the channel. If you stay, if you linger, if you look and say, Wow, I just want to sit here and behold her beauty. Because that's what David did. When he should have been someplace else... He took himself out of the battle and just hung out at home. Alone. He sees a woman. No sin in that. The sin is, as Jesus spoke to us in the Gospel of Matthew, that if you look upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, not that you see her, that you look after her to lust after her in your heart. And that's what David's doing. Long before he sends somebody to knock on her door, he's already imagined it. And as he continues to stand there and allow his imagination to go, that's what that phrase means, she was beautiful to behold. He just lingered over that area where she was, on her roof, in the dark, prior to candlelight, there was no lights back then, you know, they... She's taking a bath. She don't think anybody's out there in the middle of the night. But there's David. Sometimes when people come to this scripture, they want to they hammer on Bathsheba. So let me make it simple for you. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible give Bathsheba any grief at all. The Bible lays the responsibility for it all squarely on the shoulders of David. Now that doesn't mean that, that, that women couldn't help men out. But in this particular instance, Bathsheba was not doing something weird on her roof. David was doing something weird as he watched her. So David sees her. She's beautiful to behold. In verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, and I want you guys to, to grasp this, because this is important. Someone said, is this not Bathsheba? What did they tell him first? He, she's the daughter of Eliam. She's somebody's little girl. Two, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's somebody else's wife. She's somebody's little girl, somebody else's wife. Man, even right here in verse 3, as he, as he sends someone to find out about her, I think God is trying to get to him. Because sometimes, and listen, this was a problem for David. Right? This was a problem for David. We already read. When David came to Jerusalem, one of the first things it says is he decided to have more wives. He already had a number of wives. Now he needs more. So he <coughs> already has 
problem, already has issues. The Lord, as he reaches out to find out something about Bathsheba, the first thing they say is that somebody's girl. That's Eliab's daughter. Now you remember that name. You remember that name because in a little while, in a few chapters, we're going to study about a guy named Absalom. And Absalom is going to rise up. He's a son of David. He's going to rise up in rebellion against David. And a chief counselor of David is going to join Absalom. And actually, there's a scripture that David writes in the Psalms that's attributed to, to uh, Judas, as a prophecy of Judas, for this guy betraying him. And everybody looks at it, and they're so shocked that he would be betrayed by Abiathar, that he would be betrayed by this guy. Why is he betrayed by him? Listen, because the man, his chief counselor, had a son. His son's name was Eliab. His granddaughter is Bathsheba. When we start to, to journey down this path, when we start to journey, the Bible tells us sin is pleasing for a moment. But the price is always more than what you want to pay. So David, from this day, from 2 Samuel 11, a couple of things I want you to note about David. He'll never again achieve the same greatness he had before. One. Two. The sword will never leave his family. His children are going to kill each other. They're going to fight with each other. Why? Because they saw what their dad did. And if it's okay for dad, and they're going to continue down that road further, that even further than what David goes down. <clears throat> so as we look at it, the, this warning comes through. Hey, she's somebody's daughter, she's somebody's wife. That should be enough. Shouldn't that be enough? If, if, if men can learn to look at women not as a piece of meat, but as a human being who belongs to someone else, who has a father, who has a story, who has a life, they can change their attitude in how they see women. But David doesn't have that. He hears, oh, she's someone's daughter, she's someone's wife. But look at the very next verse, and David sent messengers and took her. He took her. He sent messengers. What, what happens when the king knocks on your door? And the messengers are there and say, the king wants to see you. She goes. It's the king. Because David uses his authority to, as a, as a device, a club, if you will, to get Bathsheba to come to him and to do what he wants her to do. He uses his authority. God lays all the responsibility on him. What are you doing, David? So David hears somebody's little girl, somebody's wife, and the next thing he does is say, go get her. Go get her. Listen, the other name, Eliab, remember he's, uh, he's the grandson of Abiathar, who later on is going to be uh, a counselor. He's a counselor for David now. He'll be a counselor for David later on and, and ultimately will go against him. Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. Uriah the Hittite is one of the guys that was with David way back in the cave days. Every once in a while, when, when, especially when I go to pastor's conference, like I, I did this last week, um, I talk to guys who were there in the tent days. You know, they talk about, yeah, we were with Chuck back in the tent days. 
You know, when there was no building and there was none all this crazy bigness and there was just a tent and surfers sitting on the ground and they still smelt like pot, but they were there sitting on the floor getting saved, lives are being changed, radical things are happening. So they'll talk about that. And those guys who were there often at that time are, are still there with him today. They don't look the same. They don't dress the same. They don't talk the same. They're all old. But they were there. Uriah the Hittite was there with David back in the day, man, back in the cave. He's one of the mighty men of David. When we study the mighty men of David, he is going to be named, man. He's not just a soldier. He had a title. One of the mighty men. One of David's premium guys. And David sends messengers to get his wife. After he sent him to war. The Bible goes on to tell us <coughs> exactly what takes place. It says so. Um, then David sent messengers and they took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity. That's important to know, right? She was, she was required by, by the, the, the law, by scripture, to make sure that she was pure. In other words, that she had been long enough after her menstrual cycle in order to have sex so she wouldn't be unclean. Not to mention the whole adultery thing. But she was purified, you know, because she went through the, the normal cleansing that she was to go through scripturally. And, and she presents herself to David and they sleep together. And the scripture says, And she returned to her house. In verse 5, And she conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Oh! And we got a problem. Now listen, sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we don't take into consideration the passage of time. This wasn't an ongoing affair. This was something David saw, something David wants, something David took. There's a period of time that passes. She's back home. He's thinking it's all good. Nobody knows. I'm king. I get to hang out here. When I send all the husbands away to war and be with their wives, hey, what? this, this is a great opportunity for the man after God's own heart, right? And as he's there in that place, she sends the word back to him later. And she says, I'm with child. I'm pregnant. And then it begins. The price to be paid is announced. And David begins what every human being does when they get caught in something they should not have done. And that is to lie, cheat, and scheme and figure out how you're going to get away without having to pay the price. Just so you know, nobody gets away without paying. Everybody pays. Sin is good for a season. I'm sure that night was probably one of the, the greatest nights that David could remember. But he no longer is going to think about that night after this chapter. Not ever again. Because the price... Way more than he would have paid. David, how many of your children are you willing to sacrifice for this relationship? To sleep with this woman, how many of your children born right now, living under your roof, would you kill for the opportunity to be with her? Because that choice kills his kids. Because they're watching. And the one thing we learn about our children is, that they'll always take that sin a little further. And a little further. 
And we'll see that in David's own life. He would never have paid that price had he known, but he thought, I'm going to get away with it because I'm the king. I'm going to get away with it because, hey man, you know, me and God, we got a great relationship. So it's all going to be okay. The Lord will forgive me. Listen, <laughs> I've heard this a number of times. I, I, I had this couple one time come to me, and, and this hor- their marriage was horrible, big problems they had in their marriage. And she said to me, I don't really care. I know what God wants me to do. I'm not going to do it. God will forgive me. Hmm. Well, you may be right. God can forgive you. God can redeem your choice. But you will pay the price. Oh, I'll pay anything. Yeah, you never think what it's going to cost you. You never think what it's going to cost. Yeah, you didn't pay. Your daughters did. And they're still paying. And you're continuing to reap fruit from a choice you made back then when you thought, oh, who cares, God will forgive me. Yeah, God will forgive you, but listen, the consequences continue to come. I can say, God will forgive me, and I can have a a relationship. And if a child comes out of that relationship, how long will that child be with me? That will be my child forever, until I die. That will be my responsibility forever, until I die. And that price will be continue to be being paid. And that's the whole point. The point isn't, God will forgive me. The point is, listen, when you choose that road, you're, you're, you're creating so much chaos out of that choice. Sure, God will redeem and work and forgive and restore. But David, Amnon's still going to be dead. David, Absalom's still going to be dead. David, your daughter, is still going to get raped. Would you really pay that price? No matter, just to say, God will forgive me. Man, the consequences are unreal. To be, to be so selfish with the concept. None of us live on an island, right? Every one of us in this room, when things happen to us, it affects more than just me. It does, man. When, 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 I, when I'm in California and I'm thinking about, about what's going on with D. And while I'm there, I'm thinking, how's D? How's she feel? Is she tired today? Is she wore out? Does she have what she needs? Because nobody's an island unto themselves. We care about one another. We affect one another, even if we think we don't. Even if we think we don't. We're all part of one another. Here, David is faced with a problem. She's with child. So David's got a scheme, like everybody. In verse 6, David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah the Hittite. Now, I want you to listen to the never-ending trail of people who are finding out about this. For example, the messengers David sent to go get Bathsheba. Do they know what happened? Yeah, they know what happened. They're the same guys who took her back. They didn't have phones in those days. So when she sends a message, she probably gives it to a servant who runs to David's servant, tells one of David's servants, who goes and tells David. They didn't call the cell phone and say, hey, guess what? 
That's not the way the messages were. So there's people involved. Now he calls Joab. Joab, send me Uriah. Now Joab doesn't know nothing yet. He sends Uriah. <clears throat> so David, well, when Uriah had come to him, David asked Joab, or David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. Now does he really care about any of that? No. He makes small talk with him. How's Joab? I just want to get a report about the war, so I asked you to come back to give me a report about the war. So he gives him a report about the war. And David said to Uriah, now go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, when we read that, we think, oh, okay, go. What's the big deal? Go wash your feet. Washing your feet was something you did right before you went to bed. And in essence, David says, go home, be with your wife, go stay there, and then go, you can go back. All David wants to, David figures, this guy's been away, he's been, who knows how long they've been gone, a couple of months maybe, a month, several weeks. Oh man, he really is going to want to go home and sleep with his wife, and once he's done that, I'm off the hook, he'll think the baby's his, we're all good. So he tells him, go down and wash your feet, which is just another way of saying, go home, clean up, go to bed, sleep with your wife, just have a, a nice night off. So Uriah departed from the king's house. Um, go to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. The king sends him some, a fruit basket, and a bottle of wine, and some chocolate strawberries, or whatever they do. And they, he sends all those things with him. But listen, in verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. Uriah didn't go home. So they told David this. David, Uriah didn't go home. What do you mean he didn't go home? So <clears throat> David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Why didn't you go home? Spend the night with your wife. You know, enjoy the co her company. And Uriah said to David, Listen to this. The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open field. So shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now listen. Hear it from David's point of view. All of Israel, the ark of God, all the armies are in tents. How can I stay here and live in my house and enjoy my wife when they're out there. But there was one guy who was doing all those things. His name was David. Who wasn't in the battle. Who wasn't a part of what was going on. Who wasn't joining in. Who just wanted a little downtime. And this is what it's, this is what ultimately his choice was. Job says, I'm not going to do that. I will not go. I will not be. I will not do those things. So David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. This is a man after God's own heart. And he gets him drunk, and he says, surely when he's drunk, he'll, he'll go and be with his wife. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed, and the servants of the Lord, of his Lord, but he did not. Go to his house. See, Uriah, as a drunk man, was more righteous than David was sober. 
at least right now. Because David don't want to pay the price. Don't want to take responsibility. Don't want to admit to his sin. He knows there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way to get over all these things. How far would you be willing to go? So in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab. And sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote on this letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront at the hottest battle. And retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. How many people are knowing? He takes a letter to Joab. Now Joab knows something's up. And pretty soon, Joab's not a stupid guy. He'll put together that Bathsheba's with David now. So this is what that was all about. And the guys who retreat, are they going to know something's up? That's one of the mighty men of David. We're all fighting together. These are guys we bleed with. And the order comes to retreat. And they all retreat, but they see Uriah doesn't get the word. And Uriah dies, and, and Joab sends word back. Well, a lot of people died today. Joab, why did all these people die? Oh, I'll just tell David. It'll be okay. You don't think they figured that out? Why isn't David going to be upset about what he hears? Because he's going to hear something he likes. The scripture says, so it was while Joab besieged the city, he assigned Uriah to a place he knew where there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. But he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all these matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king... His wrath rises because David doesn't want to lose. And he says to you, why did you approach so near the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died? And, and Thebes, why did you go near the wall? David's saying, why did you do that? Then you will also say, Uriah the Hittite is dead. Do you understand what just happened? Don't have in your mind that that they withdrew and Uriah is the only guy who died. They slaughtered a number of men just to kill Uriah. They took the fight too close to the wall knowing people were going to die. For the chance to kill Uriah the Hittite. How far will the downward spiral of man go once man begins to make the decision, hey, I don't really want to be in the battle anymore. I don't really want to battle with my flesh. I don't really want to battle with the struggles. I don't want to deal with all these hardships in life. But it's not very long before you're plotting somebody's death. One of your guys, one of the guys who was with you back in the day, for one night, one night with his wife, you'll kill him. What? 50 other guys? Bible doesn't tell us. 100? 1,000? How many have to die? 
How many have to die for, for the selfishness of a man after God's own heart? But that's where David was right now. So he tells him. Scripture says, <coughs> So the messenger went and came and told David all Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. So we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. But the archers shot from the wall at your servants. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Listen to David's word. So David said, Well, thus you will say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. That wasn't David. Joab knew how David would respond. What are you doing so close to the wall? But as soon as he knew Uriah the Hittite was dead, he didn't care about the rest. He didn't care how many guys had to die. All he knew was, I don't have to pay. I don't have to pay. And that's a lesson he taught his kids. Well, I, I, if I want to be king, I'll just kill who I need to kill so I can be king. If I want to lie with this woman, who cares who this woman is? Yeah, she's my sister, but from, you know, 14 wives ago. We're not really all that related. I'll just take her. Why? That's what dad did. Just walking in the footsteps. Just following along the same example that David has let out. Same example. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And nobody else did. David didn't mourn for him. David mourned for Saul. But he didn't mourn for Uriah, who was with him back in the day. Who'd been in the mud and the blood with him and all those times when he went and fought with the Philistines and when he went and joined them. Never left his side, stayed honest and true to him. His biggest crime was he was married to somebody that David lusted after. Uriah, the wife of Uriah, mourned for him. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, from verse 27 to 12, 1, one year has passed. David figures it's over. It's done. You know, it's this business with Uriah is over and all this nonsense is done. And Bathsheba's here. She's just another one of my wives in my harem. You know, she's, she's giving birth to a son. It's all good. It's all perfect. This is, a, <clears throat> this is exactly how it, it should be. A year passes. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him. And he said to him, David, there were two men in one city. One rich. And the other poor. Listen. God will always 
send someone to bust you. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son. What's that mean? That God's going to deal with his sin. So God doesn't just wash, wipe it under a rug. What's he do? He sends a prophet. Nathan, go talk to David. A year has passed. No repentance, no turning, no changing. A year has passed, and he sends Nathan. Nathan says in verse 2, The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except a little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him. And with his children, it ate his own food, and it drank from his own cup, and it lay upon his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Well, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this shall surely die. David? Listen, the law was very clear. If you stole another man's livestock, you were to pay back double. If you stole another man's livestock, you were to pay double. But David, when he sees sin on someone else, is so incensed that he wants to see him, he needs to die. He stole his lamb. He needs to die. So he's, he's <coughs> more legalistic. Listen, one of the things you can always discover from legalism is it's always a mask for sin. Your legalism is so that you don't have to deal with your own sin. You see it in somebody else, and you want to bust their chops over it, but you don't want to turn the mirror of God's word upon yourself. So you look at them. What's wrong with them? Because if I keep looking at them, then I don't have to deal with me. And that's where David's at. A year later, Bathsheba's in his court, everything's good. Oh, this guy should die. And he will restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. There's your judgment, David. Nathan stood there and said to him, you are the man. David had uttered his, his own judgment you are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into, into your keeping, and I gave you the house of Israel, and I gave you Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you more. Listen, if you write in your Bible, I want you to mark that. I would have given you more. From this point forward, David's journey with the Lord will be, there will still be blessing, there will still be psalms, he will still be a man after God's own heart. But his, what God would have done in his life, stopped. That's part of the price.
I would have given you more. I would have, there would have been more fruitfulness. There would have been more accomplished in your life. There would have been greater things I could have done in you. If this was too little, I would have done more. But you would not. You would not. You were not willing. Doesn't it sound like what Jesus said to Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. You didn't want to walk with me in the cool of the evening. You didn't want to, to enjoy the things that God had. You wanted this thing. This sin was more important to you than everything else. That's, that's the guile in man's heart. That's the, the junk within us that comes out. That the Lord wants to deal with. That God wants to be able to, to, to take care of. So the scripture goes on and says to him, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Why, David, have you hated the commandment of the Lord? You see, that's what it is. When we come to Deuteronomy, we see the one rule, the one thing that God's looking from, from us, from David, from everyone. What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Love the Lord your God. John would tell us in his epistle that this is love. That if you say you, you love the Lord, you ought to keep His commandments. That word for keep in the Greek means to treasure. That I value His word. The things that He says in this, I, I place value upon it. That, that I, I value what He's given me. And the, the idea, not only from, from John, but also from James, is that I walk in those ideas. I'm not perfect, but I'm not going to make the excuse before I take a step. I treasure his word. Those who say they, they love the Lord ought also to walk as he walked. That's what John says. They ought to walk like he walked. They ought to look like Jesus. So the Lord says to David, man after God's own heart, why do you hate my word? David, why do you hate my word? Because God's word was pretty clear, right? We don't have to go very far to find the problem with what David did. We don't have to work very hard to find that issue. The Lord says, why have you despised? <clears throat> why have you despised my commandments to do evil in my sight? You killed Uriah. Now who killed Uriah? Did David have the sword? No, but who's responsible? David. You killed Uriah, David. You're responsible. So we have adultery, lying, despising the Lord, murder. If we push it, we could probably find the other six as well. <coughs> you have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart your house, because you hated me. Do you see that? 
The sword will never depart from your house because you hated me. The the part of the price. Listen, I don't want you necessarily to see this as, as God's judgment against sin. This is part of the price for that choice. I have the freedom to choose anything I want to choose. I can do whatever I want to do, but there's a price for every choice I make. And part of the price, the sword's never going to depart. If you look at it as the Lord looking at the life of David, and he sees the paths, and here's this path, David, I would have given you more path. The path that had more blessing and more honor and more glory, and your kids walking in the glory of the Lord and, and fulfilling those promises that I gave you. But, but that branches off from this one moment in your life. This one moment when if only you had had the honor and the, and the, the same attitude that Uriah had and went and lived in tents with your people instead of trying to be home. If you'd have stayed in the fight. But you, you didn't. And then you chose one more bad decision after another bad decision after another pretty soon. That path, as the Lord looks at it, your kids are going to kill each other. One of your children is going to get raped by another. All stemming from mischoice. The sword is not going to leave your family. Because you hated me. Jesus, the Lord, when he took the children of Israel and he set before them life and death, he said, if you go this way, death, the sword, pestilence, famine. If you go this way, blessing. And how many times do we take that right road and we get down there and we go down and we find it, run into pestilence and famine and all this <coughs> craziness in our life and we shake a fist at God. Why are you doing this to me? And God says, I told you that was on that road. Why did you choose that path? Hey, I forgive you. The Lord would say, I love you. And I'll redeem your situation. But you still chose the path of destruction. And I can't change the path you chose. That's your path to walk. I'll redeem it. I'll forgive you. But your children are still paying a price for watching what you did. It's how vital, it's how important the choices, the decisions that we make day in and day out. Because you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Thus says the Lord, verse 11, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. What you did, David, you did secretly. But I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also, listen to this, has put away your sin. And you shall not die. David's first words, the things I love, the thing that makes David a man after God's own heart, right there. When confronted with his sin, Scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. 
when confronted with his sin, he didn't make an excuse. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. I'm, I have sinned. No, <clears throat> the devil made me do it. No, it's because of this. This woman was, you know, the way she was dressed or what she was doing. She should have never been on a roof, whatever. He doesn't do any of that. His simple response to him is, I have sinned against the Lord. And he writes from this moment in his life, the 51st Psalm. In fact, while we're thinking about that and, and the attitude of David, just let's just glance over at the 51st Psalm and <clears throat> take a taste of what's happening in David's heart, what's going on in this, in this year. In this year that David has been going through. Psalm 51, this, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, so this is from that, after that meeting, <clears throat> this is what David writes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. He's not making excuses. He's asking God for forgiveness. Forgive me. However often it, we have to ask. The point is not to hammer David over his choice. The point is to recognize Psalm 51 and 2 Samuel 11 or why he's a man after God's own heart. Because he comes back to the Lord and he reaches out to him and he says, Forgive me. Forgive me. I sinned. I have sinned. Look at verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. For that year, what David's saying is, I had this guilt. And he comes before the Lord and he says, You're right. That's what I've done. I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a sinner. Against you and you only have I sinned. What's the point of this verse? I used to struggle with this concept. But listen, here's what he's saying. I have, I have offended my God. I have hurt people. But I have deeply offended my God. And that mattered more to David than everything else. Sometimes when people study the life of Joseph, they come to a time in Joseph's life when he was telling on his brothers. You guys know the story, right? Where Joseph, where his brothers were doing dumb things and Joseph would tattle on them. And sometimes people say things like, Joseph was a tattletale or Joseph did this or that. or You know, here's the truth. <clears throat> Joseph cared more about his father than he cared about his brothers. David cared more about his sin and the effect of his sin and how it looked to God than he cared about how it affected everyone else. That doesn't mean he didn't care about them, but he cared more about how it looked to the Lord. Have you ever thought about our own attitude and the events that go around our life and if we care more about how that looks to the Lord than if we care about how it looks to other people? Well, for example... David cared more of the witness that he is in this circumstance 
to God than all the horrible things that he did, how it affected him. Well, do we ever think about how it feels to the Lord when God allows, right in front of our face, an opportunity to stand up and be counted, to stand up and say, I'm a believer, to give that righteous defense, to give that righteous witness of the Lord God. But, but you know, we're worried, and we're going to offend somebody, and maybe somebody will feel uncomfortable, and I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable, and so I care more about how it looks to them than how it looks to him. But David did it the other way. I care more about how it looks to him. Against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. My sin is before you, God. It's this, it's this humongous, festering wound, and it's always before me. And it's offensive to you, God. It's offensive to you. And so he, he, he lays that out. I've done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Whatever you bring into my life as a result of this choice that I've made, you're right to do so. And that's, that's pretty amazing thing to say to the Lord in the circumstances of your life. Whatever you bring, you're just. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I'm born in sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you, listen, desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part will make me to know wisdom. You desire truth in my inward parts. But he was lying in the inward parts. He desires truth and the stillness of a roof when nobody's watching. And the stillness of a living room when the, when the internet is on and nobody's there. Or your TV is on or a book you're reading or you don't even have to have any of those things. You just have to have your head and those things can occur. He desires truth in your inward parts. Being honest with myself. Not justifying my sin, not trying to sweep it under a rug or make it go away, but dealing with it, facing it. He desires truth in my inward parts. And the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. Knowledge is what occurs in the journey of life. David learns. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge. He's going to learn from his sin. And he says, you're going to apply wisdom to my life so that I won't find myself in that position again. And he never will. He never will. He's going to learn. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hyssop, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop, hyssop is this, this branch, kind of like sage. Hyssop is what they broke off of this bush, and just a, a branch of this. And, he, and they would dip it at the exodus in a bucket of blood. And they would take the hyssop, and they would strike the doorposts. With the blood. David said, purge me with hyssop. Whenever they brought the sacrifice, and they went in to anoint the altar for sacrifice, what did they anoint the altar with? Hyssop. They took hyssop, this branch, and they dipped it in the blood, and they applied it. David says, purge me with hyssop. 
Purge me by your blood. Wash my sins away. He's looking forward to something he doesn't even fully understand yet. God is speaking through his heart prophetically of a sacrifice that Jesus Christ is yet to become. But but David, in the depth of his despair and his crying out for forgiveness, he, he understands, purge me with hyssop. And I'll be clean. Wash me by the blood of the sacrifice. Wash me by the blood of the Lamb. That's what he's saying. He says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. What is it that Isaiah said? It should remind us, right? Come let us reason together. For though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Here David, before the time of Isaiah... He says, if you wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Purged by the blood of the Lamb. Made clean. I'll make me to hear joy and gladness that my bones you have broken may rejoice. This is where that picture comes from. Well, you remember the picture? The picture of Jesus. He's got that lamb over his shoulders. When we look at the picture and we see Jesus with that lamb over his shoulders, and we think, oh, that's pretty cool, you know. He's got a lamb over his shoulders. Maybe we don't understand the whole story. See, a lamb who's constantly wandering and doesn't understand the goodness of being near the shepherd, what they would do is they would take that lamb and they would break its legs so that it could not walk. And they would put that lamb on the shoulders of the shepherd. And that lamb would be with the shepherd everywhere until its legs healed. That lamb would be with the shepherd and and he would find that the shepherd fed him, that the shepherd cared for him, that the shepherd protected him, that the shepherd watched over him, and when his legs were healed, he never ran away again. This is what David is... Remember, David was what? He was a shepherd, right? He understands the concept. He says, he says, Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Lord, don't, don't look at me. I'm a sinner. I, I can't believe I've done this thing. But, but help me as I heal through this process to have joy until my bones that you break are healed. And I remember what I wrote the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a heart of David. You are that man. In verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Oh, God made him a promise. You remember the promise? David, I'm, I'm not ever going to take my spirit away from you. He took him away from Saul, remember? But he said, I, I won't take him away from you. Though you sin, though you fail, I'm not going to take him away. He says, make me clean. Lord, make me clean. Don't you see, this is the heart of repentance. Folks, if this doesn't happen in our life on a regular basis, you have to question whether or not you really belong to him. Because if you belong to the Lord, this ought to be the cry of your heart over and over and over again. 1 John 1.9 says that if I confess my sins, He's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But this is the attitude of repentance that agrees with the Lord. It says, this is my transgression. I have sinned. Make me clean. 
It's absolutely a requirement of salvation. When we come to the Lord, we pray the prayer of salvation, ask Him to be our Lord and Savior, is the concept of forgiveness. Make me clean. Wash me. Forgive me. And for the believer, it continues. Why? Because we continue to sin. We need our feet washed. And that's what Jesus has come to do. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. For what? So that I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you. The point of repentance is so that you can take the good news of repentance to others. So that I can teach transgressors your way. Hey, I, I recognize the areas in my life that I've struggled with sin. I recognize that, those problems in others. And because I recognize them in others, I can teach transgressors your way. Hey, brother, everybody else might not know what you're doing, but I know. Because I've been in that pit. I recognize the look on your eye. I see what's happening in your heart. And let me tell you, Jesus can set you free from that. He can set you free from that bondage. He can set you free from that sin. He can create a new heart within you. He can do the work that He wants to do in your life. And what is the result of that? Sinners will be converted. That people turn from their life of garbage and they walk in a life that God intended for them to have. Because they say, I would rather have the Lord than this sin I am holding on to so tightly. You will never let go of drugs, alcohol, women, gossip, hatred, anger, until you make the conscious choice to say, I love God more than my anger. I love God more than my greed. I love God more than whatever this thing is. I love God more. And I go to Him and I seek His forgiveness and restoration, His washing to make me clean. And I stay in that place. And when I stumble and fall and mess up, I go right back there. I love you, Lord. I want you more than I want this thing. I want you more than I want this woman. I want you more than I want this whatever. I want you more. That that he becomes so central, so central in my life. Verse 14, he says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. How guilty must David have felt? Hey, don't get the idea he doesn't know who Uriah is. He bled with him in battle. I know the guys I've been in the sand with. The guys that I went through things with in the Marine Corps. I know them. I know their names. I remember their faces. That he not forgot. And he's eaten with guilt. Deliver me from guilt. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. From what I've done. <clears throat> the God of my salvation. So that my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Why? Deliver me from guilt so that I can not have this burden in my life anymore. No. What's he say? Deliver me from this guilt so that I can sing about your righteousness, God. So that I can glorify you for your forgiveness. So that I can bless you for your mercy and for your grace. 
It's not just about me. It's about what can I offer. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice. Or else I'd give it. I can't offer anything. The Old Testament scripture said that there is not a sacrifice available for willful sin. That means sin that you do on purpose. There's not a sacrifice. And David says, there's no sacrifice for what I've done. I'm guilty. I, I fall under the penalty of, of death. I'm if there was a sacrifice, I'd give it. But there's not a sacrifice. So where does he lay himself? On the mercy and the grace of God. And what does God give him? Mercy and grace. Same thing we receive. Mercy and grace. Where sin abounds, grace overabounds, superabounds. There's no way to exhaust the grace and mercy of God. But what is required for the mercy of God? This very attitude of repentance. I'm wrong. You who are right, forgive me. Make me clean. Help me be delivered from these issues in my life. For you do not delight in burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God, listen, the sacrifices of God are this. A broken and a contrite heart. Heart is broken by the weight of your sin. Contrite means that you're making a decision to change. I'm making a conscious decision to turn away from. To be contrite. To turn from my sin. These, O oh God, you will not despise. No one. That's why when the scripture says... Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because anybody who comes to Jesus and drops to their knees and throws up their arms and says, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and I struggle and I, I guess I, I need to get free. I need to be free of this. And they lift their hands to God. Every single one of them, God reaches down to all. God does not despise a broken heart or a contrite spirit. You may struggle with that issue your whole life. But if you have a broken and a contrite heart, moment by moment, day by day, step by step, God will bring you through it. Every single one of them. That's what he wants to do. So do good in your good pleasure to Zion. And build the walls of Jerusalem. And you will be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous. With the burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. And they will offer bulls on your altar. David's like in his personal life crying out to God on his knees. Lord save me. And he says God as you, as you work that grace and as you teach and you guide and you lead me. Bless the people around me that they desire to give to you. The burn offering. 
that says, I'm consecrated to you. The whole burnt offering that says all of me and not just part. They want to come to you and worship. Because it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. It's the goodness of God that led David there. You are that man, David. Next week we'll talk about all the garbage that's going to come as a result. The good news is, God's never going to leave David. He's never going to forsake him. He's going to be his strength and his shield when he needs it. He'll be there for him to help him through it all. But he won't just make it all go away. It's the path. It's the road he chose. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 are so important. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And what will He do? He'll make your pastorate. He'll guide your steps. He'll, he'll be there to help you make the right choices. Right? Learn a lesson from the pitfalls. You don't have to go there. If you do, God will still be there. And He'll forgive, and He'll redeem, and He'll carry you through. But there will be repercussions. So recognize the pitfall. And don't jump in the pit. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the story of David, for the reality that he is a man after God's own heart, yet he is a sinner. That he is capable of the greatest amount of praise and entering into the, to the uh, city of Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant and dancing and praising God. And in a matter of a couple of chapters, he is capable of the greatest sin. But he is still a man after God's own heart. Because you are central in his life. And though he may forget and wander away, he returns consistently. Lord God, I pray that we would learn the heart of David, the heart of repentance, the heart of <coughs> seeking after you. That we would recognize the pitfalls and the struggles of the enemy who wants to cause us to stumble and fall. We'd recognize them, Lord, and choose to walk with you. Choose to love you more. Not to despise you. To love you more than our sin, more than whatever that thing is, that we would make you central. The children of Israel, they, they had you in the middle of their encampment, and then when they came to the, to the land, they, they pushed you off into Shiloh. And God wasn't central anymore. And sometimes in our lives, we're going through something, and we have you in the center bringing us through the wilderness, but then we arrive. And we relegate you to a corner. A part of our life. And it becomes ritual and not relationship. Lord God, we need you central. That we want you more than we want anything else. Lord, do that work in our life. God, if we're struggling with that, bring us to the place of repentance. To... <clears throat> Ask for your forgiveness and the strength 
to be who you want us to be, so that we might glorify you with our lives, so that we would teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners could be converted, so that people would be saved, so that we would fulfill the commission that you gave each and every one of us to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. So Lord, be with us, guide us, direct us, that we might glorify your name wherever we go. And we give you the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna